And when I researched the written materials from some engineers, including rocket scientists, at least that's what they claimed, their information does not always jive. I'm getting two stories on this Coriolis effect. Hello, everyone. Ron Spomer Outdoors podcast with a correction of a correction from a corrector. <laughs> this is the first, but we had a gentleman who corrected me on um, some cartridges and bullets. I had given the wrong bullets um, sizes for the 6.8 Western, and he straightened me out. And now he writes back to say, oops, I got the wrong bullets myself when I straightened you out on the wrong bullets that you had. <laughs> he said that there was a 160 grain, what does he say here? A copper impact. He said there was a 160-grain Winchester copper impact bullet in the 6.8 Western loads, but now he corrects it to say it was really um, a 162-grain. <laughs> so he says, uh, well, that just goes to show that we always, all of us, have to pay attention to the details and look out for each other. <laughs> I appreciate that that was from James, and he's absolutely right. You know, I, it, it's just difficult for anyone to get everything right all the time. So we all have to give each other a little bit of leeway here. <laughs> but let's see what good folks have sent us for questions this time around. Let's see. The first one up is from Frederico. He says, uh, thanks for asking a previous or answering a previous question. So I must have answered one from him before. Now I have a, a second and hard question. Why is it that I cannot buy a 7mm 08 in Europe? Huh. It's not illegal in any way. It's just basically impossible to find a rifle chambered for it and no ammo. So why is that? The 757 is still available, but nowhere is popular to justify why the 708 seems to have never arrived in Europe. Well, that does strike me as odd. I don't know, but I do know I have shot some European-made rifles that were in 7mm 08. A Merkel, a Sauer. Um, I'm pretty sure the Blazer R8 comes in 7mm 08. So I don't know. Maybe they only make those and then sell them in the uh, U.S. market. But I do know that they make them. So you might want to just jump in and investigate. Maybe it's just that your particular rifle retailer doesn't handle them. But, boy, they're certainly made. And I don't see why they wouldn't be available, but maybe they're not. I don't know. Anybody else out there have any idea what's going on in Europe with the 7mm 08 Remington cartridge and rifles? Good one. All right. Here is someone called Wren. And he asks, oh, he doesn't ask. He tells me, Ron, I'm one of those Weatherby diehard collectors. All right. I asked somebody for... Uh, I did a piece on all the Weatherby cartridges, and I asked if anyone out there had a complete set, one of every Weatherby cartridge, and a rifle to match it. So let's see what this gentleman has to say. He's a collector. He says, I have the complete Weatherby caliber collection. Well, there you go. I picked up my first Weatherby at German-made J.P. Sauer when I was 14, and I have collected one ever since. I've never been to Africa or Alaska on a safari, but the big cats is the only thing that appeals to me anyway. I have shot many elk with my 300 Weatherby Magnum. That's a popular one for elk. And countless deer, antelope, bear, and et cetera with the 240 through 7 millimeter Weatherby Mag. Your um, article indicates that there's not much difference between the Remington 7 millimeter and the Weatherby, 
I own both, and I believe the Weatherby to be more accurate, efficient, and flatter shooting. It is a deadly cartridge. I'm a collector of German-made Weatherbys. I like them better than the Sheridan, Wyoming manufactured ones. Perhaps the Japanese Hawas are the most beautiful stocks. This guy knows a lot about Weatherbys. The 378 is the most brutal to shoot, in my opinion, and the 340 is milder to shoot than my 338 Win Mag. That thing will hurt you. <laughs> I hope this has been interesting for you and your readers. Cheers. Well, that has been interesting, Ren, and I appreciate that. I do have one question for you, though. What about that 460 Weatherby Magnum? I have never shot it, but I have always heard that that is absolutely the most brutal recoil of any Weatherby and pretty much any cartridge, period. <laughs> I'd like to hear from anyone who's shot that 460 and what they think about the recoil on that one. All right, here's one from David, 3030 versus 243. Yes, I've done some blogs and videos on that. His question or answer, what do we got here? Okay, 3030 is for close in, out to say 125 yards. The 243 is better for longer ranges. In close, the 243 round may not mushroom and goes through the animal without much damage, but out past 150 yards, the 243 should open and expend the energy into the animal. Now, the 3030 will expend all its energy right away on animals. Well, maybe that's been your observations, David, but boy, it sure hasn't been mine. And it just doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because at closer ranges, the 243, of course, is going faster. Uh, every bullet starts off with whatever muzzle velocity it has, and it immediately begins to slow down because of air drag. So it has more energy, therefore it has more punch at closer ranges. That means the more energy in that bullet will help expand it more quickly and more dramatically. So the closer it is, the more it should expand. Not what you said, that at 150 yards and beyond, it would expand or open up more. It has less energy to open it up. It's, as I've always described it, set a bullet on a sidewalk and strike it with a hammer. You can use a little eight-ounce hammer. You can use a sledgehammer. You can hit one lightly. You can hit one very fast. And I think we can all understand, use the same weight hammer, but drive it very fast, and you're going to flatten that bullet a lot more than if you hit it lightly. And that's essentially what's happening as it gets downrange. It gets a lighter impact energy. And then as for the 3030, you know, it depends on the bullet too. Uh, and that, that applies to the 243 as well. There are harder bullets and there are softer bullets. And each one is sort of designed to be optimally expanding at certain impact velocities. 3030 bullets are usually built fairly soft so that they open up because there's not a lot of velocity out of a 3030. Most of the 20-inch barrels are probably lucky to get 2,200 feet per second out of a 150-grain bullet. Not much different with a 170-grain bullet, so they have to be fairly soft. Uh, those bullets also have flat noses, so they lose a lot of velocity as they're going down range. And that means they are not going to want to expand much, just not that much energy in them. So that's probably what's happening with your 3030s. At any rate, thanks for contributing and uh, throwing your observations in on that one. This is from someone uh, named Jesse. You have a lot of subscribers. Please tell everyone to document their guns so the loved ones know. That was a rather cryptic message. Let me see that again. Tell everyone to duck. Oh, I see what you're saying, Jesse. Yes, yes. I should remind all of our viewers and listeners to document their guns for their family members or whoever. So if something happens to you and you're no longer around, you've got a bunch of guns, 
your spouse or your kids don't really know what they are or don't appreciate the value of them and that sort of thing. So document that stuff. Yeah, that's a great idea. You should have the price you paid for it, um, perhaps the estimated value these days. And then if there are any extenuating circumstances that might make more value in the rifle, like it was a special edition or a limited edition, or it's in a rare cartridge chambering, makes the values go up. That way, your surviving family members won't get taken to the cleaners when they sell your guns. Good idea. Also, if you have a favorite gun you would like to give to a favorite niece or nephew or someone, friend of yours, do put that down in writing too. So yeah, take care of that kind of stuff. It's important. All right. Thanks for the reminder there, Jesse. Here's one from Randy. In 1970, as I was getting my degree in wildlife management, I had an offer to work in Alaska. I wrote P.O. Ackley about rechambering my 30 out 6 into a 300 Win Mag. Wow, that's going back. He wrote me back and he said, if you hit the biggest bear in Alaska in the right spot with the 30 out 6, you'll take him down. Hit him in the wrong place and it wouldn't matter what you hit him with. I wish I had been smart enough to save that letter. <laughs> that's a great one, Randy. Yeah, you know, the... I hear that from the bear outfitters up in Alaska, too. Phil Shoemaker has been a master guide in Alaska for a long, long time. Believe it or not, he's even older than I am. <laughs> but Phil has seen it all, and he has told me that it really doesn't matter if his clients are using a 30 out 6 or a 300 mag or a 338 or a 375. Put the bullet in the right place, and the effect is pretty much the same. Now, I'm not saying that Phil or any of these other experienced bear hunters are saying that a 30-ounce 6 would be as effective as slowing down and or stopping a charging bear. We're talking about sneaking up and making a clean hunting shot. So I think that stuff is true, and I've seen it myself with a lot of animals. It's always the right bullet in the right place. So Mr. P.O. Ackley, that would have probably been back in the 60s would have told you that but you said the 70s i'm not sure when he passed on but yeah he was probably still around in the 70s because he was pretty active yet in the late 60s i knew that all right that was a good one anthony ron i want a bit of advice on the seven millimeter remington magnum i may have misunderstood you but you indicated that you can underload that seven rem mag to the same level as the seven millimeter 08 remington oh absolutely Anthony, downloading is just really simple. When you get a hand-loading manual, you will see the recipes in it. You use this case, this primer, this powder, this much of this powder, and seat this bullet and get this velocity. At least that's what they got in their test barrels. So they start pretty low, and then they work their way up a grain or so of powder at a time to get to the peak load. And that's what you're supposed to do as a hand-loader. You start with a light load that has relatively low velocity for that particular cartridge. So Remington Magnum 150 grain bullet, you'd expect to be going, gosh, at least 3,100 feet per second, maybe a little more as your top speed. But the initial loading will have your powder levels down enough to where you're probably only cranking out 2,800. And that's what you're going to get with a 7 millimeter 08 and 150 grain bullet with probably close to your top load. So you can download your 7 rem mag to shoot like a 708. But you can even go farther down than that. And it's called reduced loads. And they mean really reduced to get your velocities down under 2,000 feet per second. So you're going down to, say, 1,800 feet per second, maybe even 1,500 feet per second. They have loads for that. You can't 
just take any powder and reduce the quantity to where you get that velocity without fear of flashover and sort of a double explosion that can actually blow up actions in some rifles. You have to be careful with this stuff. Follow the directions if you can find it. The only hand-loading manual in which I've found these recipes is a spear manual. Years ago when I was getting started, they had these reduced loads in the spear manuals. And since then, there's probably been 10 or a dozen additional spear hand-loading manuals that have come out. But it seems that every time I see one, they have at least some of those recipes for light, light loads. And they're great for practice and they're great for small game hunting. I actually used to make light loads for my 30-06 when I was elk hunting up in the mountains. I'd see a grouse or a snowshoe hare needed some camp meat. So I would pull out my heavy-duty load for the elk, put in this little load, and head shoot a grouse and have it for supper. So something uh, worth looking into. You can also hunt rabbits with it, whatever you wanted to do. So yeah, you can certainly make your big magnum shoot a lot lighter with less recoil. All right. Ha, this fella's name is Just a Burger. I like it. <laughs> He's Just a Burger. <laughs> a lot to be said for a burger when you want one. Ah, it wasn't the 22 Winchester Magnum rimfire rifles that were inaccurate. I must have said that in a blog or a video. It was the inconsistencies between the brands of ammo. Each make of WMR, that be 22 Win Mag, um, ammunition or rifle. Oh, each rifle had one or two brands and weights of ammo that they shot really well. You just had to find the one that was ideal for your particular rifle. Okay, yeah, that's part of the issue for sure. And that certainly happens with 22 rimfires. I mean, that's kind of a classic. You get a 22 rimfire and it's not grouping very well, just switch ammunition. It might work great with another brand of ammunition. Um, but the uh, 22 Winchester Magnum also had some issues with, I suspect, relatively sloppy chambers and or a little less detail in precision manufacture because a lot of 22s long rifles were used for target shooting competitions and the and the, the Magnum 22s never were those were more of a uh, a bigger 22 for longer reach and especially for hunting coyotes or some little bit bigger animals the guys would use them for so that was always a hunting application so I think they did not spend as much time working at precision in the manufacture of those rifles and or the ammunition in the dimensions of the cartridge. It's critical with rimfire cartridges to get the rims consistent. You've got your pressure, your powder that is ignited by pressure that's in the rim. It's spun, the primer is spun into the rim. And then when your firing pin strikes against the rim, squeezes it against the breech, and that's what sets off the primer. That needs to be consistent. So you need a consistent spring pressure fall of the firing pin hitting the metal on that rim and squeezing it to the same degree. You don't want it soft one time, hard the next time. So depending on how thick or thin they might get those tolerance levels on those rims, that can change the resultant velocity of that. And then, of course, there goes your accuracy. So you need consistency in 22s. That's what you get with a 22 long rifle match grade ammunition. They really take their time to get everything exactly precise. And a lot of competition shooters in 22 will get a little device to measure the rim thickness for consistency. And then they'll sort their ammo based on the consistency and or inconsistency of those. 
So eh, that's probably what's been going on. But now, these days, you can really get some really accurate WinMag 22s. They have taken their time to build some good ones. I can't say exactly which ones are the best now, but it's nice to know that they are a lot more accurate than they were back in the 60s when they first came out. So thanks for bringing that up. You don't hear a lot about the 22 WinMag these days, but it's still a pretty viable cartridge. Adds quite a few feet per second to the velocity of a 22. All right, this one is from Steve. Boxing Day, what the heck is this about? I have a question. Boxing Day, December 26, 2022. I'm out hunting. The rangefinder says my deer is 400 yards away. I'm shooting a 243 Winchester and a 100 grain bullet. I successfully make a clean kill shot. The deer is approximately at 200 pounds before field dressing. The next day, basically the same kind of a scenario. I'm now using a Winchester 22250 with a 50 grain bullet. I range my deer at 100 yards. The weight estimate of this one comes out at 200 pounds before field dressing. So they're both the same weight deer. Please explain the significant differences between the two. <laughs> uh, well, obviously, I don't think you mean the difference between the two deer <laughs> because they were both 200 pounders. You're meaning the performance of these two cartridges and bullets, I would assume. So, wow, let's think about this. 400 yards with the 243, 100 grain bullet. Now, to start things off, you've got a 22 caliber bullet versus a 24. So there's some difference already. And obviously, the weight is quite a bit different. It's double the weight in the 243. But the distance is really changed. 100 yards is a lot, lot closer than 400 yards. Uh, so you're going to have a lot faster bullet. The faster bullet will carry more energy. But weight is also a part of energy. So without a ballistics calculator, I cannot give you a really hard answer on this. But I'm thinking you're getting pretty close to putting the same energy on that animal from those two different bullets and cartridges. But as far as you you got both of them, and it sounds like you did it with one shot each, I would imagine you put the bullet in exactly the right place. And then once again, we're back to the same old story. <laughs> the right bullet in the right place, it really doesn't matter how much energy they're carrying so long as that bullet gets into the vitals and disrupts them, causing hemorrhaging, you're going to get your animal. And of course, if you strike the central nervous system, you've got them as well. So what a lot of people would say is, of course, the uh, 50 grain bullet is just not heavy enough to take a deer, but your dead deer would certainly argue against that. And many, many others. I hear from people all the time who have wonderful success with their 22-250s and their 223 Remingtons on deer uh, I'm sure they're taking very careful, precise shots and hitting them just in the right place. But once that's done, they've got the animal. And that seems to be the whole story with hunting. We make so much out, out of a bullet weight and velocity and auto impact energies and all this stuff. And then when you say, well, this is absolutely the best, someone else will come right back at you and say, are you kidding? That's the worst cartridge and bullet I've ever used on a deer. Mine is, and then they'll list their favorite, and they'll give you several examples of why that is the best, because it's always worked perfectly for them. And one might be a 338 Win Mag, and the other might be a 223 Remington. So I cannot say these are absolutes, because they really aren't. There are no absolutes except for making the right shot. That really is the absolute. You can't argue it. This is why bow hunters are successful. They don't use a lot of energy, but boy, if they make the good shot, they've got their animal. 
Now, here's one I want to throw in on the Coriolis effect. If you're not sick of it, and apparently you aren't because guys are still writing in on that. Every time I try to explain the Coriolis effect, it becomes apparent that I don't know what I'm talking about, or at least I'm awfully mixed up. So I invite you guys to straighten me out. I am still not clear based on what you guys are telling me because I get different stories. And when I research the written materials from some engineers, including rocket scientists, at least that's what they claimed, their information does not always jive. I'm getting two stories on this Coriolis effect. The one thing that is certain is that it is a noticeable, measurable effect. Coriolis happens. The military uses it to figure things out. Rockets launch, figure things out. They got to figure in the Coriolis effect for all these different measurements. It only matters at extreme range, and most of them will say 1,000 yards. You're looking at oh, anywhere from two and a half to maybe five inches of drift from your line of flight just from the Coriolis effect. That's not wind deflection. That's not gyroscopic or spin drift from the bullet. This is Coriolis effect. So what exactly is Coriolis effect? I don't know that we need to know that as shooters. We just need to know how to compensate for it. And until you're shooting at 1,000 yards, you really don't need to compensate for it unless you're one precise precision target shooter going for a really fine little target. It's probably not going to amount to much. But if you are one of these 1,000 to 3,000 yard extreme range shooters, you need to figure that stuff out. So this guy says, his name is uh, Alpham777, Coriolis effect, like all physics, always affects the projectile regardless the direction or range fired up to orbital or escape velocity of the Earth. Spaceships have to account for it on re-entry. There you go. Sure, up close it might be literally microns, but it is out at a thousand yards with some slower ammo. It's pretty notable. So he's confirming that it's there, but he's not telling us much about it or how it happens. But this next guy might because he calls himself a physics professor. So let's hear from the professor. Coriolis force is, uh oh, <laughs> we're going into formulas, guys. Minus 2M bracket WXV bracket where M equals mass, W equals angular velocity of the oh, this is not gonna this is not gonna translate well, guys. <laughs> this is part of the problem. You get these formulas that these engineers and scientists understand, and you kind of scratch your head and go, What are they saying? What language is this? I'll see if I can make any sense out of it for you. I don't think it's gonna happen unless you can read it. The velocity of the projectile relative to the angular velocity vector. Note here that the X is not algebraic multiplication, but cross. Oh, yeah, we're not going to get it. I'm sorry, Professor. I appreciate the effort, but this is not working. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, this is interesting. His last sentence is, there's probably a smarter professor out there who has a YouTube video on it already. <laughs> so even the professor is admitting that it's a little challenging to explain this stuff. <laughs> All right. I appreciate that. Let me try one more time. I did some research on this Coriolis business and the spin drift. One guy wrote in and he accused me of not knowing the difference between spin drift and Coriolis. And quite a few guys said there's no such thing as a Coriolis effect and all the rest of it. So, yes, the, the research I've done says there's definitely a Coriolis effect. And here's the problem. The experts are giving me two reasons why. 
One of them is the rotating earth thing that I talked about in a previous um, broadcast on this. And that is you've got your earth spinning from the west to the east. And if you shoot to the north, your target out there is spinning at a different rate because of the, the ball. The earth is a ball and you're further, say, toward the equator and the north is spinning less. Right there at the axis of the North Pole, you know, you go around the North Pole in a day. It's not going to happen in a, you know, how that business goes. It's going really slowly. You're going faster at the equator. So your target is moving in relation to you or you've launched your bullet. So the bullet's in the air. The target is moving away from it. And so you're not going to hit, right? It's going to, they say it spins off to the right. Whether you shoot north or south, for some reason, this Coriolis effect moves it to the right. Uh, so does the spin drift, the gyroscopic drift. Um, and then if you shoot east and west, they're pretty well all agreeing that your your car target is falling away from your bullet. So you're going to shoot high going to the east. With the west, it's the opposite. The, the target is rising up to meet your bullet. So you're going to shoot lower than your aiming point. They all seem to agree on that. The, the problem comes when they describe what's exactly happening. So the theories are the target moving away. And the other one is its centrifugal force. Um, and I explained it last time as you're on the merry-go-round, you're on the outside edge of it, and you've got all this force, you got to really hang on tight or it flings you off. Whereas if you're right in the middle on the spindle or the axis, you can just stand there comfortably and it doesn't throw you off. That seems to be what's going on with Coriolis effect, according to some of these scientists, physicists, engineers, or whatever they are. So I don't know whether it is a Coriolis effect from the centrifugal force throwing the bullet off and away from the earth, or if the target moving out from under it, I don't know what the absolute answer is, guys. Uh, once again, I invite responses. If you guys can clear it up in layman's terms, that would be great. But the, the important thing is that it does happen, and I think it's worth noting if you're an extreme range shooter, if you're just an average hunter like me, <laughs> keeping your shots inside of 500 yards and most of the time inside of 300 yards. Don't have to worry about it, but it's always fun to argue this stuff and discuss it. Gives our brains a little exercise and it's kind of interesting campfire discussion stuff. So there's your Coriolis effect. Let's hope this is the last time we have to address it for a few shows at least. If you people are getting sick of Coriolis, write in and say, no more Coriolis, please, and we will drop it. We'll come up with some other ballistic terminology and uh, topics to discuss next time. Hey, I want to thank all of you guys for sending these things in. You keep things entertaining, and you keep me thinking and researching, and that is always good. The more uh, we learn and think about uh, in our shooting, I think the better shooters we can become. And we'll certainly be more interesting uh, to talk to at parties. <laughs> hey, what do you know about Coriolis effect? Uh, not much. I listen to Spomer. <laughs> Hey guys, until next time, this is Ron Spomer with Ron Spomer Outdoors Podcast. Really appreciate you. Hunt honest and shoot straight.